Welcome back to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our study through the book of Philippians. But before we get to that today, I want to invite you to come and worship with us here at Calvary. We're located at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and you can find out more information at calvaryfayetteville.com. If you'd like to call and talk with someone, call us at 479-442-4634 or send us an email at info at calvaryfayetteville.com. Again, Pastor Kirk is in the book of Philippians and is sharing a message entitled, Work Out Your Own Salvation. And it's taken from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, and 2 Peter 1, verses 1 through 11. Let's listen together. Last Sunday, we focused our attention on Paul's challenge to the Philippian church. And it's a challenge which describes for us what God's will for our Christian journey is in this life. And we find these words in verses 12 and 13. This is the imperative, the command of this particular paragraph where he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, to review just a little bit of what we talked about last week and uh, to set us up for uh, what uh, I would like to say today, and I want to go ahead and invite your attention to turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1, if you would. Uh, we're going to go ahead and leave Philippians behind, but uh, it is this command to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, that we're talking about, and that is the title of the message. Uh, we're going to learn in Second Peter chapter one what that looks like. Okay, what that looks like. Now, many times, as we talked about last week, when we think about and talk about salvation, we only think about it in the past tense. We only talk about it in the past tense. The vast majority of you, maybe all of you, I don't know, only God knows uh, your hearts. By the way, he knows your heart far better than you know it. Uh, but the vast majority of us here today uh, profess to know Jesus as our Savior. We profess salvation. We say with our lips that we have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and having done so, some of us many years ago, it was at that point we experienced what the Bible talks about as a new birth. Being born again, that phrase, that concept, that analogy comes to us from Jesus' nighttime encounter with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you must be born again. And so we tend to view salvation only as a momentary event, only as an experience that happens at a point 
in time. And once you experience that, then everything is okay in life. And in fact, that aspect of salvation is a point in time. It is an experience. It is when we come to the place of conviction that we repent of our sins, that we give our life to Jesus Christ, we exercise faith in him as our only hope for eternal life, that he is our righteousness. We could never be righteous on our own. And we experience the new birth. And it is at that point that we are saved from the penalty of sin. From the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin is separation from God and an eternity in a place prepared for the devil and his angels, a place we know as hell, okay? But understand that, that most of us, when it comes to salvation, that's all we ever think about, is being saved from the penalty of sin. That's the appeal. We don't want to go to hell, we want to go to heaven. And so we walk the aisle, we pray a prayer, we lift our hand, we follow the Lord in baptism, we do many of these things that were outward expressions of an inward faith. And we think, okay, everything is settled. But there are at least two other aspects of salvation that the Bible talks about. There's not just the past tense where we are, are saved or were saved from the penalty of sin. There is the present tense of salvation that's day by day, right now, where we are being saved. It's an ongoing process. We are being saved from the power, the controlling power of sin over our lives. One of the uh, discoveries, once you have trusted Christ as your Savior, that sometimes kind of set us back a little bit, is to find that, guess what? We still sin after salvation, right? We still have the appeal uh, to us uh, to be drawn into sin, and we still struggle with sin. The difference between now and before we were converted at the moment of the new birth is that now the Spirit of God resides in you, and you have heavenly help uh, to be able to turn away from sin and to grow in the Lord, to experience what the Bible calls sanctification, becoming more like Jesus every day. This is the present tense of salvation. We are being saved from the controlling power of sin in our lives. That is a, a journey and an experience that we can gain ground and lose ground in, okay? And I hope you are making progress in being saved from the power of sin. That is present tense salvation. And then the Bible talks about a future tense salvation. One day, we're going to be saved not only from the penalty of sin, not only from the power of sin, but one day, we will be saved from the very presence of sin. Now, that happens either at our death as a child of God or at the rapture when God calls us out of this world. Either way, either one of those that happens, uh, you can't e experience life separated from the presence of sin and still live and walk in this world. Because sin is here, it's always going to be here till the Lord brings it to an end for you and me, either through death or through the rapture. I long for that day, for that day. 
that we no longer have to even be in the presence of temptation and sin. I said to one of our, um, one of our elderly church members just the other day, in fact, she testified of the very same thing, that for a child of God, there are worse things than dying. Dying is not the end. Dying is just the beginning of what we have been saved to experience. Life where there is no presence even of sin. So this command of Paul in Philippians chapter 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you and he works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This working out of our own salvation doesn't take place at the, at the momentary experience, the past ex tense experience of, of salvation, because we don't work for that. We don't contribute anything to our conversion experience except the sin that made it necessary. It's not your part and God's part working together and that's what it means to be saved. When you were first converted, when you were born again, it was all of grace. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Jesus provided everything. But it is in this present tense experience of salvation where we are struggling with the power of sin still present in our lives. This is where we are to work out what God has already worked in. Okay, this is where with God's power, with the will, the desire for the first time to live holy lives. You didn't have that before, but if you're saved, if you're truly saved, you have a desire to live a holy life. And with that will and that power of God at work in you, this is how we can work out what God has worked in. So see, when we, we've been born again, this is an internal experience. It's an internal. Jesus comes to live in your heart, to live in your life. But what's on the inside needs to find its way out where the world can see it. They need to hear your testimony of salvation, but even more than that, they need to see the change of conversion in your life, in your choices, in your words, in your attitudes, in the way that you live. So that's what we talked about uh, last week. Now let's take that a step further and remember this, that it is God's goal for every Christian, every born-again person to come to full maturity and Christ-likeness. What is God's goal for your life? What was his intent when he saved you of your past sins and your future sins? His purpose and his goal was to cause you to look more like Jesus every day, to grow in your faith. And if you don't believe that's true, just make a note of this. Don't turn there and read these verses right now, but uh, make a note of Ephesians chapter 4. 
Ephesians chapter 4. He talks there and he describes this growth to maturity. He talks about until we attain to the unity of the faith. This is the unity of the faith that Paul is writing to the Philippians, say, saying to them as a church, this is how you live supernaturally. You do so in unity, striving for the advancement of the gospel. And he says that we, as we mature, will come to unity of the faith. We will grow into mature manhood, now, that doesn't leave you ladies out. I understand that's a, a generic statement. But the idea is growing to full maturity, not staying a babe in Christ for the rest of your life. That we are to grow to the measure of the stature of Christ. Sometimes we look around at others around us and we say, well, you know what, there are people here that look closer to Christ than me, but... I think I'm closer to Christ than a lot of them, so I'm probably okay. I'm somewhere along in the middle, you know, somewhere between 20 to 80 percent, you know. I, I'm doing good. But God doesn't compare you with each other. God's standard is not, is not brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so. God's standard is Jesus, and he wants us to grow to the measure of the stature of Christ, that we would no longer be children tossed to and fro in this life that we would speak the truth in love, that we would grow up in every way into Christ. Now, Ephesians 4 tells us all of that and more about growing up in the Lord, working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Romans 8, 29 puts it this way. We have been predestined, predestined, we think of predestination and election as being predestined and elected to be saved and go to heaven. But what does Romans 8, 29 say? We have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That people see Christ in you and me. Now, that's not happening in many churches. It's okay for me to say that. That's not happening in many churches today. Many churches are torn by division, by people only thinking about themselves. Churches are experiencing all kinds of problems and conflict in our country today. And without heading down a rabbit trail from which we would never be able to come back, understand that, that our freedom and our democracy in which we live, that while this is a, a wonderful country to live in, even with all of its problems, it is this idea that you are your own independent, autonomous self that has the right to live like you want to and do what you want to do in life. The freedoms we have in many ways have damaged us spiritually. Because it's caused us in the kingdom of God not to feel a degree of accountability to each other, accountability for each other, accountability to God. Understand, there's no such thing as a free agent Christian. There's no such thing as an independent agent 
follower of Christ that has the right to do whatever you want to do. When Jesus said, all authority is given to me in heaven and in earth, that means he did not leave any authority left over for you to do whatever you want to do with. We all are to live under his lordship. And Lord is that name in Philippians 2 that he was given by his father on his coronation day back in heaven after his sacrifice for our sins. He was given a name above every name and it is at the name of Jesus. It is at the name of Lord for there is only one that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. So we practice for heaven by doing that here, okay? Now here is a sad testament of our time and let me read this to you then we'll get to 2 Peter chapter 1 and walk through it pretty quickly. One man has said, by our lack of understanding of true discipleship, meaning growing up into maturity in the Lord, by our lack of understanding what true discipleship is, we have substituted a false idea of what a person needs in order to please God. We've created a substitute. The result is shallow-rooted, artificially shaped, miniature believers who do not bear fruit or reproduce the life that is in them. The result of not understanding true discipleship is that we substitute a false idea of it. And the result of that is shallow-rooted, artificially shaped, miniature believers who do not bear fruit or reproduce the life that is in them. Just this week, in my Bible reading, I got into the book of Jeremiah and came to Jeremiah chapter 2, where I was reminded of a passage of a verse that speaks exactly to what this says right here. Exactly what we are guilty of in our day today. Where God says to the people of Israel, He said, my people have committed two evils. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. I am, God says, I am a fountain of living water. That whole idea and analogy carries over the New Testament, doesn't it? Jesus said he was the living water. God is saying, I am a fountain. I am an artesian well gushing forth, not reluctantly uh, releasing a little trickle of water. I am a gushing, raging well of living water. But my people have forsaken that. But they realize they need water. So the second evil, first of all, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, Number two, they have dug out, they have created for themselves cisterns. Cisterns. You know what a cistern is? Well, there's the brethren's and there's the cisterns in the church. No, no. A cistern is some kind of vessel made to hold water. It is a watering trough, maybe, on a farm, a cattle ranch, or a horse ranch. 
It is some kind of vessel made to hold water. But there's no fresh water coming in on a regular basis. And uh, there's no uh, always a, a, an escape of the water. So it gets slimy. It gets disease-ridden. It gets bad. Nobody wants to drink from that. And he said, my people have decided that their cisterns of filthy, self-made, self-righteous water is better than what I have to offer. But guess what? He didn't stop there. He says the cisterns they create and that they have made, they are broken cisterns. And they can hold no water at all, even bad water. Now understand, when you and I decide that we're not going to do things God's way, we're going to do things our way, that we are not going to walk by His precepts, Instead, we're going to create a substitute. Understand, we are turning away from the fountain of living waters, fresh, cool, nourishing, never running out. And we are creating for ourselves our own kind of religion. We are creating for ourselves our own kind of righteousness. God doesn't accept it. It's man-made. It's self-made. It tastes bad. It's ugly. There's bugs in it. And on top of all of that, our sisters, we can't even keep them together because they keep leaking out. That's what he's saying. Our way of creating the idea of what discipleship looks like, if we don't go by God's way, the result is shallow-rooted, artificially shaped miniature believers. And that's what fills most churches in America today. I hope you won't think me to be too judgmental about that, but I've seen it too many places too many times. I have pastored churches that that was the truth about what they had experienced through the course of their church life and church um, experience. Okay, so Second Peter chapter 1 helps us understand what it looks like to work out your own salvation. I know oftentimes we preachers tell folks, this is what you need to do, and this is what you ought to do. And we're not very good about telling you how to do it. Well, there's not a lot of how-to here, but there is in this one passage, I believe, what is the definitive description in all of the New Testament about how spiritual growth, Christ-likeness, how it works. How it works. Let's take up the reading. 2 Peter chapter 1. Follow along in your Bibles. Please let your own eyes see the pages of Scripture. If you don't have a Bible, it's page number 1018 in the pew Bible in front of you. Simeon Peter, or as we would know him, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now let me pause just a minute. Notice that phrase, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Faith is not generated from within. Faith is not your contribution. Faith is not something you can come up with on your own. Faith is 
obtained. The Greek word here means received. Faith is received. Ephesians 2 tells us that faith is the gift of God. So even what we, uh, how we exercise faith resulting in salvation, even what we give to God of our faith is something he has already given to us. Okay? And he's saying, Peter is saying, he's writing to saved people like you and me. He's writing to save people in his day, 2,000 years ago. And he's say, saying that they have and we have obtained the same faith that he and the other apostles had obtained. That there wasn't one degree of faith given to apostles and something less given to uh, the rest of us normal people, that, that we experience a common salvation. It is not customized to you, to you, to you, to you, to you, to you. It is a common salvation that God has given to us with a common faith, a faith that uh, all has its origins in God. Okay, verse 2. May grace and peace, and remember, grace always has to precede peace, right? To have peace, you've got to experience grace. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. He's going to mention knowledge of Christ three times in these verses that we're reading. That's the first one. Verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge, there it is again, of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Now listen to verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. I remember when I first discovered this passage. I'd read it many times. But there, you know how that is, how there's something that you've read, that you've even maybe studied, 
But all of a sudden, one day or one evening, you read it and a light comes on. And maybe more than any other passage of Scripture, this passage right here that we just read helped me to understand many of my struggles as a young believer and not so young believer and follower of Jesus Christ. It was life changing. I want you to write down, uh, if we can get to them, five words. We may only get to one or two and just stop. If I could get an amen. I know you'd like that. Uh, not keep you quite so long today because I don't want to cut this short or sell it short. I want you to notice what this passage talks about. Number one, we see the provision. The provision. We see it in verse 3 and the first part of verse 4. God has already provided some things for us. God has already given us what we need to grow into Christ-likeness. It's not that we need something new from God. It's not that we need something more from God. Your past tense of salvation, when God saved you from the penalty of sin, He gave you the Holy Spirit to move into your life. He gave you not only the Holy Spirit, but He gave you other precious promises. He provided them for you, and the reason you and I at times are not growing into maturity in Christ's likeness is because we are not availing for ourselves what is already ours by being children of God. Look again at verse 3. His divine power, His supernatural power, has granted, has given, past tense, to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things. How many times have we felt like God short-changed us? That there must be something else to experience. Did you know many people that have walked down what I believe to be the error of the charismatic influence of, of sign gifts, of tongues and miracles and these miraculous things, and wanting to say that God still does that today, if you have just enough faith, you can do those things too. Understand, many have gone down that path because they feel like there's something else they have to experience, a second blessing, a second work of grace. But what does the Bible say? It says that God has already granted us everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness. And how does it come to us? Through the knowledge of Him, through the knowledge of Jesus, who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted, again, past tense, He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. His super promises is what that means. 
They're already yours. You already have access to everything you need to live a Christ-like life, to walk in maturity in Jesus, to grow into the measure of Christ. The potential is already there. It comes through the knowledge of Christ. Friends, we don't start the Christian life with Jesus and the gospel and then move on to other things. We start with Jesus and the gospel. We continue with Jesus and continue to learn and to appreciate and to grow in the gospel of Christ. And as you walk in that, you end up with Jesus and experience the fullness one day when he calls you home. Remember what Philippians says right after that imperative to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For, for, because it is God who works in you, giving you the will, the motivation, the desire to work and to grow in faith and to serve him. If you don't have that desire, if you don't have that will, beloved, you need to go home today and get on your knees and don't get up until you have it. Because if God has truly saved you from the penalty of sin somewhere inside of you, maybe long since uh, grown cold or grown cool, the embers grown over with ash, but somewhere if you've truly been born again, there is a spark, there is some heat, there is a motivation, there is a desire to do the will of God and to grow into Christ's likeness. The Christian's efforts, the work we do for Christ, are based on the sovereignty of God and the sufficiency of all of his provisions that he has given to us. Folks, listen to me. What I'm saying and what the Bible is saying is this. You can make a difference for Christ in this life. You can make a difference in the lives of people around you. God can and God will speak through you. you can make a difference in what heaven is going to look like. You've been given the privilege and the provision to be able to do the work of God in this world. That's already a possession that God has provided to you. So let me ask you a question. Let me just meddle a little bit. Why then do the things of this world matter so much to us? Why do the things of this flesh matter so much to us? Why do our homes and our possessions matter so much? Well, I worked hard for that. Well, guess what? The world does that. Any lost person can do that. What makes it so special to you? When you have the riches of heaven already provided to you and you are a partaker of God's riches and a possessor of them. When you have the power and the potential 
to be used of God to change people's lives. Why then do we care so much about our privacy? Why do we care so much about our hobbies? Why do we give so much of our time and attention to getting so much better at physical things when this body is going to just wither up and die someday. Now, I'm not saying we don't be, we're not to be good stewards. Certain we are. Take care of what God's given to us in, in the flesh. But it's all going to pass away. Your hobbies, your sports, your job, why do you give so much attention to that? Why do you give so much of your time to people who do not care about your eternal soul. Why do you devote yourself so diligently to people that don't care about your souls, that are not helping to build you and to strengthen you? And then in return, they're not being drawn any closer to Christ because you're not talking to them about those things or seeking to live Christ in front of them. The provision. God has already given us all that we need. We are the sons and daughters of the King of glory. All that he has is ours. We need to use that to follow in his steps, to grow into his, his likeness, to be like little Christ in this world. By the way, that's what a Christian is by the origin of the meaning of the word. They were called Christians. It was a derogatory term when you read that in the book of Acts. These people who rejected the Messiah Jesus said, well, these people, these are just Christians, little Christs. And yet what a compliment that was. Would they say the same about us? Let me give you one more point, and I'll stop after that. Okay, will that be okay? If I only do two or five points... I want you to remember this Sunday. It'll go down in history. Okay. Number two, this passage gives us the purpose behind it. The purpose. What is the purpose of Christ's likeness and growing into Christ's likeness? What is the purpose of God already giving us what we need to be like His Son? The second part of verse 4. So that, he's given us these things, so that through them, through his provision and his promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. God has given you these precious promises. God has provided for you all that you need to live a Christ-like life, to grow into maturity, to become a fully mature follower of Christ, a fully devoted follower of Christ. 
Why has he done it? So that through doing that, giving you those things, you may become a partaker. A partaker. That means, that word, by the way, is koinonia. A fellow companion. Someone who shares the journey with you. It's the same word, by the way, a word, that we get the idea of the Holy Spirit. He is one who is called alongside us to help us. And so in the same way, we become partakers with God. We become uh, companions in fellowship with God and with each other that we become uh, a partaker of the divine nature. You have the divine nature of God inside you. Paul in another place calls it Christ in you, the hope or the confidence of glory. He says in another place that the Holy Spirit lives inside you, that he is the earnest of our inheritance. He is the down payment of our inheritance. Because you have the Holy Spirit now, the divine living inside you, the third person of the Trinity, because God dwells in you now, it is the guarantee that one day everything else God has will be yours too in heaven. The divine nature. Is the divine nature inside showing through in your life? Is God the Holy Spirit who is a resident within? Is he working out in your life? Is he controlling your choices? You see, the Holy Spirit, this is how it works. The Holy Spirit is within you. And he wants to come out and be seen through your life. So you have opportunities to speak for God, to make a decision that God would have you to make, to in some way humble yourself or to turn away from sin or surrender some further area of your life to God. You have all these impulses every day. And so you have to make the decision, am I going to surrender to what he wants or am I going to do my thing? And if you decide to do your thing, you are quenching the Spirit. You are stifling the Spirit. You are stifling the divine nature inside you. You are not letting the divine nature be released. You're not working out what God has worked in. But understand, it's not just to reflect G Jesus in your life. He went on to say in verse 4, also... It is so that you might escape the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. To escape the corruption of the world. How many times have I given my life to the moral decay and the ruin of this life by quenching the Spirit's work in me? say, oh, preacher, that, that couldn't be true. Well, folks, if that wasn't true, I'd be perfect. And I know some of you probably think I am. But if you'll just see my wife after services, she'll explain that to you, that I am not. I can be very worldly. I can be very selfish. I can be very self-centered. 
And you know what the Bible calls that? It doesn't, it doesn't give it pretty and acceptable terms, you know, like we give it and the way the world exalts it. The world calls it corruption. My selfishness is moral decay, and so is yours. It will ruin you. It will ruin the Christ life in you. And the Lord says, I want you to escape that. I don't want you to live with the guilt and shame of your old life. You see, before Jesus came to live inside you, you weren't ashamed of your sin. You weren't even, in most cases, that concerned or aware of your sin. You were spiritually dead without Jesus. And if you've never been born again, that's where you still are today. You will excuse your sin. You will overlook your sin. You will tell yourself that you're not so bad. But once the Holy Spirit moves in in the new birth, we have God living in us, the divine nature, who convicts us and who reminds us of how desperately we need Jesus every day. My friend, that's what it means to be growing in grace. That's what it means to work out what God has worked in. We'll stop there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the wonderful gifts and treasures you have given to us through the new birth. Father, not just a future blessing, not just a future escape from hell, but you have already made it possible for us to escape the corruption that is in this world right now. Father, you've provided generously for us through grace. Help us to walk. Help us to be partakers, to avail ourselves of the grace and the mercies and the provision and the possessions that your son Jesus bought on the cross on our behalf. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.